0: We are nearing the end of our series in Acts. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed the series. A lot of different speakers, a lot of different uh, styles of preaching and different ways of approaching the scripture. But through it all, we've been seeing the the beginnings of the church and the really exciting story, the narrative that uh, gets unfolded. We started on the last Sunday of May. And we'll be finishing next week. Rico will be Rico Arrocha, Ricardo's son, will be doing our final uh, sermon in this series. Um, he'll be doing it remotely and get the equipment working. Um, but we still have five chapters left in the book, and I'm going to do three of them today, three chapters of Acts. So this will require um, a certain style of preaching. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read through the three chapters and then I'm in chunks and we'll make I'll make some little commentary and uh, first of all though I'll give a little review of where we are right now in Jerusalem and then what I want to do is introduce to you the cast of the characters that appear in these three chapters Uh, it's chapters 24 25 and 26 and this is a cast of characters that you've heard of and read of and read about before but if you're like me they're sort of it's all confusing in your mind there's Festus and Felix and Lysias and Agrippa and Paul keeps defending himself in various ways and you're just confused if you're like me about the actual sequence of events that happen so it's real been a real blessing for me to prepare these three chapters because I think I have it straight in my mind now and I hope this will stick with me and I'm going to help us by trying to get it straight in all of our minds today so we have a an idea then of how acts ends how how paul is um what the narrative tells us uh, while he's uh, there in in uh, in israel before he heads off to rome so i'll introduce the cast i'll review i'll introduce the cast and then and then we'll read through the three chapters And what I'd like us to do as we're reading through them, I'd like us to think about three things. Keep these things in mind as we read through these three chapters. First of all, I'd like you to to be aware of the fact that in Paul's life, there was a lot of productivity in the face of adversity. So we're going to walk with Paul through his his imprisonment uh, in various places in these three chapters. And this was a rough time for him. His future was uncertain. He was being treated unfairly. He was being accused repeatedly. These were adverse circumstances in his life. And yet, through all of this, he was productive for the gospel. So I'd like us to keep that in mind. Secondly, um, I'd like us to observe how the gospel is advancing. Remember at the beginning of this series, which I introduced, I said that Acts was like the, the source of a mighty river. And uh, the, we see the, the river is quite mighty today, Christianity, but this was the very beginning, the beginning trickles. And uh, I encouraged us then to think about uh, how things got started. How did, how did it actually happen that the church survived these first few uh, years of its life? Why didn't it just fade away? Well, of course, we have a spiritual answer in that. The Lord said the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. But we also have some practical answers, and we see those in Acts. And one of them we see here uh, in the way that the gospel went from something that was sort of a groundswell. It was happening at the, the level of the people. And in these three chapters, it really escalates. It escalates up through through a, a commander of of uh, military people to a governor of a province to a king of a land. And then we'll see in the final two chapters how Paul goes to Rome. And eventually, it rises to the level of the emperor of, of the Roman Empire. The highest person, in some sense, in all of the world at that time. Really quite amazing. And you see that 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 moving upwards in the hierarchy in in these three chapters. So these three things, productivity in the face of adversity, the advance of the gospel to higher and higher level. I didn't actually say the third one. The third one is the the great importance of uh, Paul's imprisonment in Rome. It's it's predicted uh, in a direct revelation to Paul, and then um, it eventually becomes apparent why it's really important that Paul go to Rome. So I want us to think about that as well. So let's do a a brief review of where we are, starting at chapter 21. So remember, we're doing 24 through 26. 21 is when Paul arrives in Jerusalem. So he's been on his third missionary journey, ends the third missionary journey by coming back to Israel. And uh, when he, he does that, he spends a few days until he gets down to Jerusalem comes into the seaport and gets down to Jerusalem and Asian Jews stir up a mob there uh, a mob so the asian Jews would have been from where he was doing a lot of his missionary activity there in turkey and asia minor um so that's asia and the jews had actually remember kicked him out of several cities and now they've actually come all the way to jerusalem and he's there and he they're stirring up this mob and uh it gets so violent that um Lysias uh, has to come in and intervene, and I'll introduce you to him in a moment, or reintroduce you to him. Uh, he gets his soldiers to come in and rescue Paul, and uh, just as they're about to uh, um, go into the barracks, Paul turns around and faces the crowd and uh, gives uh, one of his great uh, defenses of, uh, of his own experience. we are going to see five times Paul makes a defense. Uh, for the gospel. Uh, and the crowd quietens down. They listen to him at first, but then it starts to get ugly. And so uh, Lysias just uh, formally arrests Paul and takes him inside inside the barracks and uh, wants to treat him poorly. But Paul says, well, I'm a citizen of Rome. And so uh, he, he backs way off. He gets quite frightened by that because citizens of Rome have great privilege so he keeps him in prison overnight the next night he brings him before the council uh the council which is mentioned a number of times we'll we'll see that today the council is the sanhedrin it's the it's the uh maybe the uh, equivalent of the the high court the court of appeals or something like that it's it's the it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and these are these are the the people that stand in judgment, but on the on the religious side, in in uh, in Israel in Jerusalem. And there are councils in each city, so this is the, the the council of Jerusalem. And so then in in chapter 23, Paul gives a second defense of the gospel, and he starts speaking about his uh, good conscience, and as he begins. Um, the high priest Ananias just uh um, just says, "Strike that man, he must be struck and uh Paul strikes out verbally at the high priest and he snaps back at him and then um he's rebuffed for that and uh he um He feels contrite about having spoken that, that way to the high priest when he finds out that it was the high priest that asked that he be struck. And um, so then he he tries a different tack. He throws in a statement about the resurrection from the dead. Well, as it turns out, the uh, Sadducees and the Pharisees who are both on the council dif- disagree very uh, strongly about resurrection. The Sadducees believing that there is no such thing as resurrection from the dead. Um and uh, the Pharisees, of course, believing in that, and so they started fighting among each other, just as Paul is intended. And the whole uh, trial of Paul uh, fell on its face because uh, nothing could happen. This is what uh, Paul Hagen brought before us last week, and had some very nice thoughts about the various characters that were involved in there, and and what we could learn from from uh, their, uh, their their characters. <clears throat> very end, the very last verse that Paul Hagen dealt with last week was uh, verse 11 of chapter 23. I want to just read that verse because it's really important. The following night, the Lord stood it by him. So Paul is is still in Lysias Barrett's the prison there. Uh, Stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. As you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This is a very important moment in Paul's life at this juncture of his ministry. For one thing, it confirms the fact that he is is still walking in the will of the Lord. The Lord appears to him directly. This, of course, was critical in his own conversion when the Lord appeared to him. And now the Lord appears to him directly again in prison, and just confirms by even just being there and speaking with him that Paul is on the right path. Um, and secondly, it gives Paul some some direction, some inkling of, of what's going to be happening, what the path should be. And this will bear uh, importance in the events that come in the way Paul responds to them in the next few chapters that we're going to read. Okay, so let's talk about the people that are involved here. Obviously, there's Paul, so we don't need to say anything more about him. It really helps to understand the characters that we see here by going back a bit and remembering that one of the most important family, the most important family politically in Israel at this time, was the Herodian family, so we first encounter them in Luke when Herod the Great meets the wise men. Remember, and then he eventually kills all the babies in in, in uh, Bethlehem. You remember that? That was Herod the Great. So uh, he himself was Jewish. His ancestors were Edomites, and they'd converted to Christianity. So Herod the Great, very evil man, but he was Jewish. Now, his grand one of his grandsons was Agrippa, uh, and we're going to call him Agrippa the First. And Agrippa, we've already met in Acts. We met him in Acts chapter twelve. You remember when Peter and James were preaching, and uh, and Agrippa, who was Jewish, his grandfather Herod the Great was Jewish, was Jewish. Uh, to uh, side with the Jews who hated the Christians in Jerusalem and their growing strength there, he actually had James, the apostle, put to death. It says that right at the beginning of Acts chapter 12. He had James put to death. It was the first apostle that was martyred. Uh, and it, it was because Agrippa the first put him to death. And then he threw Peter in prison. And you remember that whole story in Acts chapter 12 about Peter going to prison and then the chains falling off at night and he, he comes out and he goes and knocks on the door and Rhoda the maid, all of that happened because of Agrippa the first. Okay. Agrippa the first doesn't appear in our story, but his son, Agrippa the second, does. Now his position, Agrippa the first in, in the land was exactly the same as Herod the Great. He was the king, the Roman king, designated king of Israel, of Judea and Samaria. He was the king of that region. He was the top official for that region, that region. Herod was, Agrippa 1 was, and Agrippa 2 was as well. He comes in right at the end of the verses that we'll read today. Okay, so we have Agrippa 2, the son of Agrippa 1, who was the grandson of Herod the Great. Now, Agrippa 2 is one of our characters, And it really helps to understand that Agrippa the two had two sisters that appear in our story. One of them is Bernice, and one of them is Drusilla. So remember those names, Bernice and Drusilla. Now, Bernice, even though she was his sister, was also his consort, his concubine. So he was in an incestuous relationship with his sister, Bernice. Drusilla, his other sister, was married to another character in our story. So I want to introduce you to two other characters in our story. And they are the governors of Judea. So they're underneath the king. They govern part of Judea and Samaria. They're underneath the king. One of them is Felix, and one of them is Festus. And it's easy to get these confused because their names are almost the same. They both start with F-E. But Felix is the first one we'll encounter, and Festus is the second one. And Felix was married to Drusilla. So this really helps as as we read through this. We've got the king and his two sisters, and one of his sisters is married to the governor, Felix. So you can imagine... There was uh, some some motivations going on there in in Felix's mind when he started dealing with with Paul, knowing that his brother-in-law was the king, King Agrippa. So Felix was a governor, and then he was uh, replaced by Festus, who was also a governor. So Felix and Festus are both governors of of uh, of Judea. And then you have Lysias, and we've already met him. He was the military tribune in Jerusalem. So there were different kinds of tribunes, but he was a military tribune. He was in charge of all the soldiers in in the Roman soldiers in Jerusalem, and there were hundreds of them. So that was his job. He, he kept order. He was the military commander. That was Lysias. So I think that's all the characters. Um, oh, there's also Ananias. He was a high priest at the time. So he was on the religious side in Jerusalem. And there's one other character that's mentioned. His name is Tertullus. We only see him briefly, um, but we'll get to him in a few minutes. He was he was a spokesman uh, in one of the trials. And then, of course, there's a, a large, those are all the named cast. There's a large supporting cast. There's the, the uh, mob in Jerusalem. There's the Asian Jews that come in. If you're making a movie, you'd have to have uh, parts for all of these people, pay them ten dollars each for a day acting, days acting to get in the movies. Uh, There's Lysias' soldiers. There's a lot of those. um, We're going to read about um, a Jewish cabal of 40 uh, zealous Jews that wanted to kill Paul. They wanted to murder him. and then there's the council. I've mentioned the council, the Sanhedrin, um, the uh, Sadducees and the Pharisees and the priests. And I think that's all the people that were involved. And of course, there would have been other people around as well. But those are the actual characters that are involved. So having said that, let's read through the three chapters now and I'll just make some comments as we go. So starting, I'm going to start where Paul left off last week. So that will be at the end of chapter 23. So we'll start at verse 12 of chapter 23. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So this must have been a, they felt very strongly about this. They made this this group of, 40 plus very zealous Jews made this plot, and they actually made a vow that they wouldn't eat until they had killed Paul. Um, I can uh, remember thinking many times when I read this passage, I wonder if they all died of starvation (laughs) because they didn't kill Paul. Uh, They didn't fill that out, but they were certainly in their minds, they were very determined to do this. And so the idea here was Paul had appeared before the, the council. I, I, I just reviewed that. Um, he had got them into this, this argument about resurrection. He was back in the jail again. And their idea was for the council and the high priests uh, and the priests to call Paul back and have another trial, a religious trial before them. And on the way to the courthouse, as it were, they would set an ambush and they would kill him. So they were plotting uh, an assassination, plotting uh, a murder. And um, it's very interesting because apparently, I mean, we don't know this, but it seems like the council and the priests all went along with this plan. There's no record of any kind of um, the plan was scuttled because because the council said no, we're not going to be involved in that. So apparently, <clears throat> they went along with it, even though the plan never got executed. Um, <clears throat> and it just—it just shows we, we see this again and again. I'll keep pointing this out. We see again and again the uh, how very extreme the the um, uh, the the Jews in high places hated paul it was it was a a visceral hatred it wasn't it wasn't just a casual um you know i'm kind of upset with what this guy is doing but they hated him they hated him for what he was teaching and the effect that he was having as the Lord was starting to build his church and they saw this movement growing and growing and not abating and not going away as as the uh, months and years went by. <clears throat> they hated him deeply. All right, so now, now the, the plot, uh, this plot from this uh, cabal gets revealed to Lysias, the tribune, the military tribune. It says in verse 16 of chapter 23, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him that is Paul's nephew, by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Now, of course, it would be inevitable uh, with these 40 people that somebody is going to hear about it. We know all about that. Nowadays, in the political sphere, there's always leaks. It doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter what things are being planned in secret. It always leaks. Somehow it always leaks. Well, it leaked. And somehow maybe maybe it was Paul's uh, sister that found out and told told her son. Um, <clears throat> I believe this is the only time that Paul's sister is mentioned in the Bible. But it may have been her that found out. Or it may have been a friend of hers that was married to one of the 40 that was horrified when she overheard uh, her husband speaking to one of the other of the forty in, in another room, and she knew about it, and she mentioned it to Paul's sister and Paul's sister mentioned it to the nephew. We don't know how it happened, but somehow it leaked, and Paul's nephew, uh, who probably loved Paul, uh, decided that he should go and warn him. He didn't know he didn't know what to do, so he went to Paul and Paul says, "It's very interesting here that Paul um, doesn't say, in response to what his nephew says he doesn't say well if i'm to die it's the lord's will i'll just uh whatever whatever the lord wants i'll do it no he doesn't say that he's uh he's he he defends himself he defends his life just like he did very often in the past when when the crowds came for him he would escape he would let down in a basket over a wall or whatever it was he would do his best to escape, because his heart was always for ministry, for for preaching the gospel, and he knew that once he died, he was gone, and uh, <clears throat> and he couldn't do that anymore. So he doesn't resign himself to uh, this his supposed fate here, God's will, but he he takes action and he does the logical thing. He gets he calls the centurion who's guarding him. And and says uh, this man has something to tell uh, Lysias the tribune. Uh, doesn't tell him what it is. The centurion doesn't know, but the centurion dutifully takes him up to uh, <clears throat> Lysias. Lysias takes him aside. Interesting that he uh, he's uh, he's wise in doing this, so that it's, it's whatever this news is. There's clearly something. Strange going on here and and he wants to be the first to know and he wants to be able to control it so he takes him aside he asks him what it is the nephew explains it to him and he sends the nephew home uh, and tells him not to not to tell anybody else because his plan is to prevent this murder. Let's read about how he does that. Uh, Verse uh, 23 of Acts 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So his plan is he's going to rescue Paul. He's not going to even chance that someone breaks into the barracks and, and kills Paul. He's going to get Paul away from the the situation. Take him to Caesarea. Caesarea, of course, is on the on the coast. It's the great administrative capital of of uh, Judea. Um, it's 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 where all the uh, officials are. It's where the governor lives, Felix, that we're about to encounter, and <clears throat> and so his plan is to move him there. It's very interesting uh, how he plans to move him. He's going to send him with a guard so that uh, no one, uh, so that he can get him there safely. So how many people does it take to guard Paul? Well, it takes uh, 200 soldiers. Now, this isn't, this isn't to prevent Paul from doing something like escaping. It's to prevent people from killing Paul. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen, 470 people were in this entourage to protect Paul as they moved up to Caesarea. It's a trip of about 75 miles, so they could only go part way. The first night, as we're about to see, they also he also put Paul on a horse, and there were several horses for him. They took mounts for Paul, I mean, that suggests that they were moving quickly, so they had to they had to change the horses um, along the way. So they were moving quickly. And uh, and they made Paul comfortable along the way. I suspect Lysias was continuing to be concerned about the fact that Paul was a citizen, had to be treated well. And he knew he would answer for that eventually uh, when uh, it moved up the chain. So then in verse 25, he wrote a letter to this effect. So this is what Lysias wrote to Felix, who's the governor who lives in, in, uh, in Caesarea and is going to receive Paul. And he writes this letter. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So clearly, Lysias wants him out of Jerusalem. He wants to wash his hands of the affair. He doesn't want to see Paul again. He wants the governor to take care of this problem. And so he describes it fairly well. He he pumps his own case up just a little bit here when he says, um uh I was about he was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Well, he didn't rescue him because he found that he was a Roman citizen. Um he found that out after he rescued him. Um, but he wants uh Felix to think well of him, so he says, Oh, I found out he was a Roman citizen, and so I went and rescued him. But other than that, it's a fairly accurate account. <laughs> um and it is interesting that <clears throat> just like Pilate said of the Lord, and this was mentioned earlier, Pilate said of the Lord, uh, I, I find no evil in him, I find no sin in him, I find that he's done nothing wrong. So this is what he said about Paul. He's he's done nothing. As far as I'm concerned, he's innocent. He hasn't done anything deserving uh death or even imprisonment. Um uh, but I don't know what to do. Uh, I don't want to set him free, he'll be killed. He's a Roman citizen, I'll be I'll be uh um, uh, guilty of having, having, uh, I'll be guilty of his death if I do that. Um, I don't want to, at the same time, I don't want to upset the Jews. I'm just not sure what I should do. So I'm handing them over to you, uh, Felix. Ironically, Paul is put to death years later, um, through the, the series of imprisonments that he had all the way up to imprisonment in Rome and finally the emperor the emperor was Nero at that time who hated Christianity the emperor Nero eventually put him to death that was that was the end of the story and I hope that wasn't a spoiler and so in verse 31 we read the soldiers according to their instructions took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris Antipatris is uh, but halfway from Jerusalem to uh, Caesarea and so they, they stay there overnight. And then uh, verse 32, the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before them. So I guess they felt a little safe. The 200 soldiers and 200 spearmen returned from Antipatras back to Jerusalem. But the horsemen, the 70 horsemen and Paul on his horse or horses uh, continued on to Caesarea and uh, went into the uh, custody of, of Felix. Verse 34, on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. So this is Felix now talking to him. The governor Felix, remember he's married to Drusilla, who's the sister of the king, King Agrippa II. Um, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium. I don't know why he asked this question. Uh, I think he was hoping he would say he was from some place where he could, he could, um, send him to that place. So he didn't have to deal with, uh, this problem of Paul. But unfortunately, the answer was Cilicia. So he had to do something. And so he decided to put him in prison and then call the council all the way from Jerusalem to come to Caesarea. Uh, even though Paul had already appeared before the council, now he was going to bring the council to Caesarea. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. I do like to think of Paul during this journey from Jerusalem up to Caesarea, which took, you know, it started at nine o'clock at night. Uh, on the night they went to Antipatris and then, and then the next day, doing the rest of the 75 miles up to um <clears throat> caesarea i like to think of paul on his horse with the other horsemen around him and he's talking to them and i'm sure even though i don't read it here in the scriptures that he talked to them about the gospel he talked to them about the lord jesus because paul was always productive under adversity this is one of our themes today paul would would have talked to them he would have listened to them he would have heard their stories he would have told them his story and he would have told them about the Lord Jesus Christ uh, on that journey. Love to have been on that journey with them as they went up to Caesarea. So finally, we come to Acts chapter 24. Um, uh, and this is where now Felix wants to get the this group to come up uh, from, uh, from Jerusalem. And so after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders, and a spokesman, one Tertullus. Remember I mentioned Tertullus. It's the only time he's mentioned. And he does the speaking for them. this is what he says. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him saying, since through you, we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude uh i just say here that's it's pretty slimy i don't like tertullus <laughs> he's just um he's really uh what's the expression for that painting that i i can't remember what it is uh but to detain you no further i beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly for we have found this man was a plague one who stirs up riots among all the jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarites nazarenes he even tried to profane the temple and we seized him. By examining your, him yourself, you will be able to find out from him uh, about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Probably this, this uh, slimy way he had of speaking and um, uh, speaking to Felix was the reason that he was chosen to be the, uh, the spokesman. And uh, so he butters them up, and then and then and then makes these accusations about Paul that he's a plague, that he stirs up riots uh, among Jews everywhere, that he's a ringleader of the Nazarenes, and that he attempted to profane the temple. None of which is true. And uh, he's pretty bold when he says, "Go and examine him yourself," because surely they must know that all these things aren't true. Um, They feel that they're true in some sense, I guess. I mean, I just I can't understand the. Um, i can't think of the word but they're some they've got to know that they're lying about this um paul did take a nazarite vow we know that uh at one point he in Ephesus, he cut off his hair and so <clears throat> so there is that uh, there's a whole sort of complicated story about that but but he certainly wasn't a nazarene rig, ringleader of zealots so all of this was false and uh, then in verse 10, the governor had uh, nodded to Paul to speak. Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over the nation, I cheerfully make my defense. So he acknowledges Felix has been the governor for some time, and he's a good judge, and he's putting his, his trust in his good judgeship, and he's happy to make a defense. And he's happy to make a defense because, as he says, uh well, he'll say in a moment that he has a clear conscience that none of these things are true. Nothing that has been said is true. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. So it's only been 12 days since he arrived in Jerusalem to begin with. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or the synagogue or the city. Neither can they prove to you that what what they now bring up against me But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years... I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you. And to make an accusation, should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, which I cried out while standing among them, It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you. So this is Paul's third defense of his faith. And you notice he brings the gospel in here. He defends himself. He defends his actions. He defends what he was doing. He ties himself to the Jewish nation. He still loves the Jewish nation. You can read about that in in Romans chapter 10. He loves the Jewish nation. He loves the fact that he is a Jew. He's one of God's chosen people. He follows the Jewish ways, but he also follows the Messiah, who is the Jew's Messiah. And he believes in the resurrection from the dead, and he brings, he brings the gospel into this whole thing. And, of course, there, the, the council will be fuming at this. Uh, as it turns out, Felix has actually studied Christianity, verse 22, having the re- Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge uh, of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. It's quite interesting that Felix had studied Christianity um, and he just, he's taken by paul's words he first hears this slimy tertullus who's who's just saying all these sickly sweet things to him oh felix you are a wonderful man you've done so many wonderful things for us and then he listens to paul who's just a straight shooter he says i have a clear conscience i'm happy to defend myself um, none of the things that they say are true um here's the reason they can't be true. I've only been here for 12 days. I've acted peacefully and so on. And he likes Paul and he knows something about Christianity. And so he sends the council home. Now, he says until Lysias comes. So presumably he's going to invite Lysias, the tribune to come. I'm I'm not sure why that is, but he doesn't do it. And um, now I'm going to just run out of time here, so i just got to be uh, a little bit quicker which i can do um uh, <clears throat> felix now puts him back in custody They're in caesarea puts him back in custody but um He says, uh, uh, verse 22 having an accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Well, it turned out uh, Felix was only governor for two more years, and that's the state of affairs for the next two years. He keeps him in custody, he doesn't resolve the situation. Um, nothing's happening uh, as far as, as Paul's case goes, but he keeps talking to him. So he's interested in this. He wants to talk to him. And he even brings his wife, Drusilla, sister of Agrippa I, There the second is going to uh, be appearing shortly. He brings his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Why was she Jewish? Well, because she was in that family of Herod the Great her great great grandfather was Herod the great who was a Jew uh so she was jewish and he sent for paul and heard him speak about faith in jesus christ so i just love to think about this two year period where paul was in prison sort of light uh prison light we might call it uh, his friends could come and meet his needs you know you can imagine a nice situation you know like those uh guys uh Crime kingpins who go to jail, and then you see them depicted on TV as having comfortable cells and and so on. He he was he was comfortable. And Felix keeps keeps asking about Christianity, and he gets a chance to speak to him. So not only is he speaking to all the guards around him, but he's speaking to Felix as well, who's the governor of all of Judea, and even Felix's wife. Felix brings Drusilla with him. Drusilla, darling, you're you're a Jew. You know more about. the, the Jewish nation than I do, you come too, because because Paul is speaking about, you know, he's a Jew, but he's also a Christian, and uh, I need to understand more about this. So he brings his wife along for two years this goes on, where he's talking to Paul, Felix and Paul, talking about Christianity. As far as we know, Felix never became a Christian, um, and of course that theme has, has uh, happened uh, throughout history, that people can hear the gospel repeatedly, but they, they never become Christians. So then what happens, I may have to do a little summary here without, without uh, reading everything, but then what happens, his term as governor ends. We don't know how, why it ends, if it was just a, a timed thing, you know, he's on for five years or something, or if he got booted out for some reason, but for whatever reason, his term as governor ends and Festus comes in. Now, Festus, as far as we know, isn't linked at all to the the royal family. Felix was, Festus, no. So Festus comes in. The first thing he does in verse 1 of chapter 25 is he goes to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So Caesarea is the administrative capital of Judea, but Jerusalem is really the religious capital of and always has been of Judea. And so he goes down there, the powerful religious men, are in Jerusalem, and he goes down and talks to them. And at least part of what he talks about, the part that Luke records for us, is the problem of Paul. Paul's been languishing in a prison here. He's a a problem there. And I understand that you still care about this. Oh, yes, we care about it very much. Uh, The chief priests and the principal men of the Jews, verse two, laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. They were still planning, and this was the high priests. This was the council. So I guess they did go along with that original plan of the 40-plus zealots. They were planning to kill him. It just boggles the mind to think of these men who were the, the religious top dogs in Jerusalem who preached all these things, they preached the Ten Commandments, thou shall not murder, and they were planning a murder. At the highest level, they were planning an assassination. Uh, So you can see that they really cared about this, and the fire that they hated Paul with hadn't gone away at all, and they really wanted to get him. But uh, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly, so said, he let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So rinse and repeat. This is the same thing all over again. It happened with Felix. He brought the council from Jerusalem up to Caesarea. Now Festus is going to do the same thing. Are you keeping track of the characters? Felix was married to so. Festus, not married the royal family. Uh, fresh breath of air. He brings them up. He's going to solve the problem now. It's like every president of the United States wants to solve the Israeli-Palestinian problem. And they all think they have a solution, but they can never solve it. Can't solve the problem with Paul. So he stayed with them eight or 10 days, it says in verse 6. And then he went back to uh, Caesarea and uh, ordered Paul to be brought. And when he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges again. And here's Paul's fourth defense. Very brief. I'm sure it was longer than this, but... And I'm sure it included the gospel, but this is what he said. Neither against the law of the Jews, verse 8, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. I'm innocent. Paul is cool under pressure. Imagine the council. says they were around him. They were gathered around him. You can imagine um, a, a scenario where he's in the middle of a circle of people all around him, not like sort of facing. Well, it's maybe like a, a Senate hearing. I don't know. But. Um, they were all around him, and they were accusing him, and they hated him, and it was vitriol. They hated him, and he was just very calm. He just kept uh, proclaiming his innocence. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, uh, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges that are before me? <clears throat> so now we reach a really, really important point in our story. Festus has to decide what he's going to do. He wants the the Paul problem solved. He's not going to do what Felix did and keep him in prison for some more years. So what can he do? He can't release him. By the way, one of the reasons that he didn't just release him, because he probably believed Paul just like Felix did, is that... it. There was a lot of tension between the Jews and their Roman rulers, even though the Roman rulers in this case was Agrippa II, who was a Jew himself. There's a lot of tension, and we know that because that tension completely exploded in another 10 years in the sack of Jerusalem, right? This was happening in 60 AD and 70 AD when uh, Jerusalem was sacked. So... Because of this tension he couldn't just release him so what was he going to do Well, how was he going to solve this Paul problem what should he do how should he solve it he said well Paul maybe you want to go back to Jerusalem where they all are not just a representative but they're all there and and uh stand stand uh trial and of course Paul had had this vision 23 chapter 23 verse uh, 11 very important the Lord had appeared to him and said, you're going to Rome. So Paul knew that going back to Jerusalem was the wrong thing because of that vision. But he also knew that going back to Jerusalem was the wrong thing because <clears throat> he would be killed. <clears throat> Paul realized that. So he didn't. He declined. And, of course, then there's the famous uh, thing that happens. Then Paul said, I am standing before Caesar, uh, Tri- Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer, have committed anything for which I deserve to die. I do not seek seek to escape death. Kill me if I deserve death. That's fine. I know I don't. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. this was a, a turning point in this whole story. I appeal to Caesar. This was his trump card. He had been holding it up his sleeve the whole time. He hadn't he hadn't said it so far, perhaps because he thought he would be freed, but now it's uh, because of because of what Festus said to him. Here are your choices, you know, go to Jerusalem or go to Jerusalem. And there was basically only one choice, and so Paul had at that point only one choice, uh, really, because he knew he wasn't going to Jerusalem, and that was to. Play his trump card. And uh and so knowing that he was supposed to go to Rome, I'm sure he was completely at peace with that in his heart, that uh that that's what he should do. Now, I'm not going to have time to go into the whole um the whole thing with Agrippa, so I'm just going to summarize it with you. But what happens. In verse 13 of chapter 25 is that Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. So they came for a visit. This is Agrippa too. And Bernice, his sister, who's also his concubine, or his wife, I'm not even sure if they were married. Um, but it's a, a very creepy relationship. Uh, and they stayed there many days. And uh, Festus, before sending Paul... Off to Rome because that would have taken some time to organize. It, after all, 470 soldiers were um, uh, designated for just getting him from Jerusalem to Caesarea, but to get him all the way to Rome on ships and, and, and organize all the ships it would take some time. So Agrippa came for a visit to Caesarea. He should have been living there since he's the king, but but he came for a visit and he got involved in the story and. And what I'm going to let you read that. I, I don't have time to read it. But, but what basically happens while he's there, um, Festus approaches him and says, you know, I've got this problem. And it's been going on for a couple of years now. And he probably described the whole thing to him. Paul coming to Jerusalem, getting arrested by Lysias, brought to Caesarea, being uh, tried in Caesarea by Felix uh, and the council. And then languishing two years in prison light. And then he becoming, Festus becoming the governor and sort of doing the same thing again, going to Jerusalem, bringing the council to Caesarea, uh, um, trying him again, finding nothing wrong with him. And then he would say to uh, Agrippa too, and then he appealed to Caesar. And so obviously I have to send him to Caesar. I mean, that's the rule. That's what Roman citizen is allowed to do. So he's appealed to the highest authority. That That is the Supreme Court, as it were. And we have to send him there. That's the final authority. And so I have to do that. And Agrippa was intrigued by this. He says, I want to meet him. And so he arranged a formal public hearing. So now the king is in in charge. And this is that other theme I was talking about, how This just kept escalating, and the gospel keeps coming into it the whole time. It's not just Paul saying, well, no, I didn't incite mobs, and so on. It's Paul saying, well, I didn't incite a mob, and by the way, and then preaching the gospel. And it's going up and up and up, and now it's gotten to the king. And there's only one more step beyond the king. The king reports to Nero, Emperor Nero. There's only one more step, and the gospel has reached the very top of the kingdom. You can see it climbing up here, and Paul is really excited, and he he's brought into this public tribunal. He's he's brought in there, and, and all the pomp and circumstance, and Agrippa's there, and Festus is there listening, and Agrippa gives Paul all the space he wants. Paul keeps getting cut off in these previous ones, but in this one, he gets all the space he wants, and he gives a long description. He appeals to Agrippa's Jewishness. He goes into he goes into the fact that he is Jewish and talks about the prophets and, and, uh, and the predictions of, of Christ and, and why what he believes is true and, and what he's the fact that Christ is the way and the truth and the life. And, and this is where you, where, where this is what I've been preaching. And so this turns into it's very interesting. Agrippa recognizes this in his response. This turns into more than just a defense of his own actions. It, it turns into a personal appeal to Agrippa. He says, he says to Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? Agrippa is, is Jewish. Do you believe in the prophets? And Agrippa understands the question. The question isn't, do you find me innocent or not? The question is, do you, are you willing to accept the gospel right now? It's an appeal. It's a gospel appeal to become a Christian. And Agrippa says, you think to convert me. He realizes that. You think to convert me. And Paul says, you or or anyone, great or small, the gospel is for everybody. What a moment. I love that. The gospel is for everybody. And uh, Agrippa says, well, I have to think about this more. And uh, Bernice was there, and uh, I'm sure there was some discussion about it. As far as we know, he never he never took the opportunity, even though even though he had the greatest preacher that ever lived preaching him the gospel, he never took that opportunity. Um, I encourage you to read that defense. It's it's just uh, Paul goes through his own, his own testimony. Um, which is so strong, you know, his, his testimony about meeting the Lord on the road to Damascus. And he goes through all of that. And it's just, it's fantastic. And he concludes his whole thing with with the gospel. It's interesting that just before he has this exchange with Agrippa, Festus jumps in. Right at the end of his, his, um, his gospel presentation, Festus jumps in. Um, Festus is there and uh, he jumps in and he says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And Paul said, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent, Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Christianity is rational, by the way. Don't let anyone ever tell you that Christianity is in opposition to science. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Isn't some secret sect. And then the exchange with Agrippa. And then Agrippa and Festus retire to a a private place. And Agrippa says to, I mean, he's convinced by Paul that Paul is innocent. He hasn't been convinced about the gospel, but he's convinced that Paul is innocent. he says to Festus, you know, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we could have let him go. If Agrippa's visit had been a little bit earlier, that's probably the way it would have gone. Agrippa would have said, we're just going to let him go. But um, it was too late. He had appealed to Caesar, and so they had to follow through on that. So that's it. That's how the chapter ends. And Rico will bring to us the, the journey then to Rome and, and, uh, and how the, the whole story that Luke has laid down here ends. Uh, I'm sure Luke had a lot of fun writing, writing this narrative of what happened in Jerusalem and Caesarea. And uh, and how that uh, came together. So let's just review the three things that I wanted you to think about. One was productivity in the face of adversity. We all face adversity at one way or another. Maybe it's just a cold. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's um, a loved one. As we get older, more and more people around us die and we go to funerals and we're sad and we grieve. Uh, there's that kind of adversity. Maybe we get a, a dread disease like cancer or um, your, your friend just had a stroke. Um, maybe it's that there's adversity in our lives and I know my inclination is sort of to turn in on myself and feel sorry for myself but Paul always in his adversity he was productive and you can see that five times he gets to share the gospel and I'm sure it was many more times than that that he maintained his productivity for the Lord in fact it is the case that that adversity often stimulates productivity we've seen that all down through the ages where persecution um, the church is built on the blood of the martyrs, they say and then the advance of the gospel we see that moving up the chain and it's just very exciting to see that Nero was uh, a dread enemy of of Christianity and we know that from some of the horrific things that he did um, uh, later but uh, and he was the one eventually to give the order to execute Paul but um, but he heard the gospel eventually. All the way up to the top, he heard the gospel. And then uh, the the importance of, of this imprisonment in Rome. And I just, I want to point this out just at the end here. Paul didn't know uh, why uh, God wanted uh, to take him to Rome. Um, undoubtedly, there were many around him who came to know Christ. He talks, Paul talks in Philippians about speaking to the guards around him. Um, Paul had time when he was in Rome to write seven of the books in the New Testament. Think of that. Instead of traveling around with these busy missionary things, he had time to write uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First Timothy, Second uh, Timothy, Titus, Philemon. He wrote all those books, those beautiful books that we spend so much time in. He did that while he was in prison in Rome. And of course, uh, I can only imagine the effect of his uh, his martyrdom eventually, in the hands of Nero, the effect that would have had. You think about um, a person like Jim Elliot and the way he his death in Ecuador um, caused so many people to go to the mission field. Imagine imagine the effect of, that his death would have had. Paul's death, Paul the apostle. In Rome. Uh, so rather than rather than another maybe 10, 20, 30 years of fruitful ministry, uh, the Lord put him in the situation where he was martyred, and probably uh, it was a, a great outflowing from that. And so we see this mighty river uh, growing. Lord God, we thank you for uh, our brother Dr. Luke, who so faithfully recorded all these details fine details that we we can study and we can understand the uh, all the the nuances of of paul's life and we we stand with him today we pray that uh, we might be uh, as worthy as he was in in uh, serving you help us to be productive in the face of adversity and uh, just thank you for this reminder that the gospel is for all it's for the high and the low and the the, uh, the well-balanced and the, and the sick and the homeless and, um, and uh, every person. Just help us to have that same uh, freshness about us, the same boldness, the same willingness to, um, to be uh, ambassadors for your son, the Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.